Okay, um, at this time I'm going to read the sermon text. If you could all please stand for the reading of God's Word. And today we're going to be in Galatians um, 526, um, 6 through 26, verses 1 through 6. Am I right? right. I'm not right. 526 through 65. Oh, okay. All right. Um, let us not be conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, it's so good to be with you all this morning, and I'm so glad to be able to open God's Word to you, um, or with you, and to expound on this beautiful passage of Scripture. Um, I hope that we could all hang out on the 14th, that's this Saturday. Um, it's a great way to, even if maybe you're kind of new here, or um, uh, it's a great way to just kind of get to know people, to hang out for the afternoon, we'll probably get some lunch together. So I hope that you can join us um, this, this um, Saturday at 10 a.m. right here in our church. We're going to have a lot of fun preparing these, these, these packs for the kids and for the, for the teachers. And we're going to be praying for them, too. We want them to come to know um, and trust in Jesus Christ. So this is just one way that we can serve them and show the love of Jesus to them. So I hope that you can come and help us prepare the bags and, um, and just pray with us for this wonderful thing. Um, I also wanted to just say a quick prayer, too, if you could just join me real quick in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, that it's powerful to us. And God, I pray, Lord, that you would powerfully speak to Bonnie's um, daughter and us, um, son-in-law, who, who recently just had a grandchild. Uh, um, bless them with health and courage. Um, God, remove any feelings of anxiety or fear that they might have and help them to deeply trust in you. I pray, God, that you would bless Bonnie as well, and thank you for her love and concern for her kids. Um, bless us now as we continue um, in your word in Jesus' um, in Jesus' name. Amen. So if, if you're like me, and let's hope you're not, um, <laughs> I think God has grown me in this area of life. But if you're like me, um, when I was younger, when I was faced with the need to confront somebody, um, I would have done one of two things. I usually um, would have started off with people-pleasing. I wouldn't have said anything because I wouldn't, wouldn't want them to dislike me. I wanted to be in their favor. So I would have continually just kept my mouth shut. Any, anybody in here go through that in your life at some point? <clears throat> the fear of man is a snare, Scripture says. So oftentimes, um, when faced with a confrontation or a conflict, we're just good at not saying a word, right? So that was, that was one reaction that I would give, okay? The second reaction wasn't so pretty because over time, 
if you sort of bottle something up long enough and you don't say something long enough, eventually it's like Mount Vesuvius explodes. It all just comes out. After you avoid the issue over and over again, it finally comes out in this unhealthy cascade of emotion, right? And it probably makes the situation even worse than it was before. So you're stuck not saying anything to anyone, or you say it in such a harsh and hostile way as to dismantle any possibility of dealing with the issue in a productive and Jesus-glorifying way. Have you been there? Because I have. Maybe I'm going to be there today. Watch out. Here it comes. <laughs> the gospel, though, we've been, we've been studying all about the fact that Jesus Christ saves us from start to finish, not by our performance, and through that salvation, he adopts us into his family and admires the heck out of us, loves us to death. And we can never, no, never lose the love of Christ bestowed on us by faith in Jesus. So all of the admiration of God, the love of God, the affection of God is poured out on us by grace as his children because of his grace and not because of our performance. That's what we've been talking about. That's the Jesus plus nothing else gospel. Jesus' death alone adopts us, makes us right with him, and, make, and adopts us into his family. Understanding this transforms the way that we treat each other. It transforms what we think about ourselves, even, and because it transforms the way that we think about ourselves, it transforms the way that we treat other people. Okay? So, so this morning, I want to talk about how the gospel affects our relationships and how it transforms us into restorers, gentle restorers, reconcilers. Okay? We're going to first begin by discussing what the gospel does to your self-image what you perceive about yourself, and why that affects how you treat other people and your relationships with them. So let's start off with what it means, what I mean by a gospel self-image. Chapter 5, verse 26 says this on the screen. You can see it. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Let us not become conceited. You can underline conceited. The word for conceited actually means, literally, vainglorious. Vainglorious. You say, okay, that's not helpful. <laughs> All right, let me, let me help you out a little more. It means that you are empty of honor internally. So in other words, to be conceited implies a deep insecurity. You do not perceive any honor for yourself at all. So you lust for honor. You lust, you're hungry you are honor hungry. You're glory hungry. You are desperate for other people to honor you and to applaud you. So it says, let us not become conceited. The word for conceited means vainglorious, empty of honor, implying a deep insecurity. Friends, God created us. So this is something that you all have to, pay, have, have to understand, right? God created us so that he could give us honor himself. We were supposed to receive it from him. In other words, the applause that we seek from each other, the desire to be noticed and admired and loved, God created us to want that from him and to receive that from him. 
You were built for it. That's why John chapter 17 says that in the redemption, God gives you the honor and glory that Jesus gets. Not because you deserved it, but because he purchased it for you. Isn't that incredible? The same honor and glory and applause and love that Christ gets, you get in John chapter 17. So God created us to, to be hungry for his love and affection and attention. Does that make sense? But the presence of sin means that I don't really want it from him. I want it from the stuff he's made. I want it from the creature. That's what Romans says, over the creator. What matters is that his people or his things love me. And it doesn't really account any, any longer that he does. Right? So the presence of sin means that we seek to earn our approval through self-glory. We, we sense this insecurity that we're not receiving honor or we're, 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 it's absent from our lives. So we take on this role of having to prove ourselves over and over and over again. We lust for glory, for the notice, for the admiration of people around us. Have you ever been there? You just want someone to, to see you, to pay attention to you. You, you can notice this very well, by the way, in children. Children have this unique desire for mom and dad to pay attention to the new dress that they just got or to, or to the new picture that they just drew. They really want you to love it. They want you to be impressed with them. Is that true? You re recall what the father said to the son at, at his baptism, by the way, and, at his, at, and on the Mount of Transfiguration? This is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, I love this guy. I'm proud of this guy. I've said this to you before. I love this guy. I'm proud of this guy. And he is super competent, so listen to him. See, we want, we want our moms and dads to sort of pour over us that sort of glory. And friends, it's because it was built into us to receive it from the Father of love the God of lights, the creator of heaven and earth. <clears throat> if you perceive that you lack honor or glory, you will then need to prove your worth and begin to compare yourself to other people. The snare of compare, right? You see, if you're, if you're sensing, man, I'm just kind of, I'm not getting glory or honor or affirmation from people, what do I got to start doing? Well, I got to start being better at you than something, at something. Isn't that true? I'm better at you at X, Y, and Z. I'm, I'm beating you. I'm winning. I'm accomplishing more. I'm making more money. And people are noticing, and they're impressed with me. See? My house is cleaner than that other mom's house because I apparently work harder, right? We're hungry for honor, so we compare ourselves to other people, and then if we, if we win, we get honor. If we don't, we get humiliation. Isn't that true? We either feel great and better than other people because we've won, or we're devastated because we're inferior to other people. See, friends, both pride and insecurity are forms of conceit because both want the applause of man. One just got it and the other didn't. You see? Pride and insecurity are forms of personal conceit 
because you are hungry for the honor of others. That's what it means to be conceited. You're honor hungry. You are hungry for the honor of others, and either you're getting it, which is making you proud, or you're not, which is making you desperately insecure. And chances are you have swung on that pendulum back and forth from time to time in life. Isn't that true? So the lust for admiration, which is conceit, will cause us to do two things in relationships. It says it in the text. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Okay? If you want the glory of people based on your performance, you will, you will either provoke people or you will envy people. If you crave glory through your performance, you will choose one of these two paths. Provoke in scripture means to challenge someone to a contest. You ever meet a person that everything is a contest? I can dig this hole faster than you, right? I can beat you at cornhole. <laughs> you remember that one? That's a ref last week reference. Right, like everything's, they have to win. Every argument, they'll fight you. They will argue any point, no matter what it is. Even if they know you're right, they're still going to be contrary because they just want to win. They want to fight and they want to win. That's what provoke means. I'm going to provoke you. I'm going to, I'm going to beat you down until you admit that I'm right. Right? Provoke. Envy means something a little bit different. En envy means that you want something that someone else has so that you might have it rather than them. So the provoker, you could see it like this. The provoker has won. The envier has lost. But they were both after the same thing. You see? They're sort of opposites. Provoking aims to prove superiority. I want to prove my worth by being superior to you over someone else so that I can look down on them. I'm better. I'm up here and you're down there. Right? But envying sort of bemoans the fact that you lost. They have something that you want. You're not as talented or strong or intellectual as they are. So you envy them. You envy the applause that they receive and you desperately want it. You see, but the provoker has the applause and they think that they're better than you because they received it and you didn't. See? So there's sort of op opposites here. They are both forms of conceit. They're both conceit. The insecure person is just as conceited as the proud person. Does that make sense? The insecure person is just as conceited as the proud person because they lust for the attention and applause of people. One just got it and the other didn't. See? Now, let's not forget, by the way, that that's what this letter to Galatians is all about. Our performance is not why God honors us. You see, that's the gospel. God honors us, crowns us with many crowns, adopts us into his family as sons and daughters, not because we were smarter or better looking or harder working, but because he found us lost in our sin, desperate, and saved us in spite of it. You see, so we don't get the honor of God we don't get the applause of God because we were good enough and deserved it. The gospel says that God loves us and honors us and esteems us, not by our performance, but by his grace. So if I am receiving the admiration and applause of the one that matters most, the king of kings, not because of my performance, but because of his grace, 
then I won't need to work for that admiration from his creation. Does that make sense? I'm getting it already from the king, so I don't need it from you. So I, now I don't have to provoke you. I don't have to envy you. I don't have to compete with you because I already got what I wanted in Christ. You see, so friends, when you understand the gospel, you don't have to compete anymore. It, it just sort of kills conceit and provocation and envy. So let's take a little test. You ready? You came to church. Now you got to take a test. Um, do you have to always win an argument? I want to ask, like, what side are you on? Are you on sort of like the insecure, envying, I wish I was like other people because they're better than I am? Or, or the proud, and I, I can beat you at anything, right? Those, those two, two faces of conceit. So which, which one do you tend to lead towards? So do you always have to fight and, um, and win an argument? I know sometimes I do. I know sometimes I enter into, an, enter in, into a conversation, and it really doesn't even matter what I'm talking about. I just want to be seen as smart, Right? So do we always have to fight to, to win, to be right, to provoke others, to prove that you, you are intelligent and smart? Or are you just constantly agreeable? You envy other people's knowledge, and you assume that if you even enter into a debate, you're just going to be defeated, so why bother? Right? Do you get defensive and retaliate when someone criticizes you? Or... So in other words, you fight them and try to prove them wrong, and here's why I'm awesome and you're wrong, right? Or do you shrink away into just a puddle of despair because they're right and I'm such a loser, right? See, these are two forms of this desperate heart that wants the applause of man rather than God and his applause. The gospel transforms your self-image. It neither makes us proud but it doesn't make us self-deprecating either. And it, it transforms this need to live a comparison-based life. If I receive my worth by my, by my performance, I am forced to feel myself to be better or lesser than other people. Isn't that true? But in the Jesus plus nothing gospel, we are humbled in that we were sinners undeserving of his salvation but we are also confident because he has crowned us as sons and daughters by his grace. So it is both humbling, the gospel is both humbling because none of us deserve it, but it also infuses us with this confidence and boldness because we are declared to be sons of God by his grace. So it's in the gospel, friends, that you don't need the applause of man or the applause of mom and dad or the sympathy of a husband or a wife. Your competition, your envying, your comparing is put to an end. That's the gospel of grace. That's what it does to your self-image. We need no longer fear losing the approval of others, even, friends, when you mess up legitimately. You ever lose someone's approval and you didn't do anything wrong? That stinks, right? But what about like when you blow it big time 
and you, and you fall flat on your face, and you hurt somebody, and you sin against them. You know, friends, the Bible calls us to repent of those things, to not do those things willingly, but the reality of the gospel is that even when we fail, even when we fall in sin, we do not need to lose any sense of personal esteem in, in our relationship with God because we are made right with God through Christ, not through our performance. He still loves you as a son, as a daughter, even though you've made that mistake. Right? Likewise, so that's good news. So I mess up and I don't have to lose personal esteem. Right? But likewise, I don't have to get all puffed up when something good happens because I did something right. And here's the reason why. Because, if, because I know that if I had done it wrong, God still would have loved me just as much. And his love for me has not increased because I did a good job at something. Oh, this is my better son that I love more than this one. You know, his, you know like, he, does, he's, he makes more mistakes. He doesn't make as much money as this other guy, so I love him more. You see, that's what earthly fathers do, but not the heavenly father. The gospel puts our self-worth on God's scale, and it crushes our conceit. And it transforms, consequently, it transforms our relationships. And here is how it, it transforms our relationships in this verse. When we are controlled by the gospel, and when we are not conceited and provoking and envying each other, competing with people, and vying for their honor, we actually desire their restoration. Brothers and sisters, verse 1, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Your aim now, in other words, is before when you were conceited, you wanted to demote them and promote yourself, right? Because you wanted man glory. But now, because you are secure in the gospel, when someone has demoted themselves because of their sin, you desire to promote them in the gospel of grace. To put them first. They've fallen and you want to lift them up. You see how it reverses things now? Now it's not you trying to be better than them. It's, it's you trying to lift them up and put them on display as a trophy of God's, God's grace and not yourself. See, this is sort of what happens when the gospel grips our hearts. We start to re desire to restore those who have fallen. Um, if, friends, if you have a superiority complex, and that is your form of conceit, you would never try to restore a sinning brother or sister. You would just simply call them out harshly, simply to point out the fact that you're better than them. Right? But the inferior conceited person wouldn't try to restore them either, because they wouldn't be willing to risk their rejection if they didn't like what they had to say. You see? So the superior conceited person doesn't want to restore fallen brothers. They just want to point out their failure so that it can make them look better. And the inferior conceited person doesn't want to help them either because they are unwilling to risk their rejection. This doesn't mean, Scripture says here, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. It doesn't mean that we are on a patrol to point out everyone's failures. Every little sin that they might commit, we're on it, right? It, the, the Scripture says that these are caught in sin. Did you see that part? 
they are caught in sin. In other words, the implication in Scripture here is that this is serious. Sin has captured their heart. It's repetitive. It's habitual. It's, it's killing them. And we who are spiritual desire to restore such a one. You who live by the Spirit um, is interesting because you say, okay, you, you, who live, you who are spiritual, some translations say, well, I don't know that I, I feel very spiritual all the time. You, you tend to think this is for the super elite Christian. No, friends, this is for the person who desires to love and follow Jesus. That's all that means. So you're not off the hook because you're not a deacon in the church or a pastor. That's the pastor's job, right? You who are spiritual, in other words, you who love Jesus and want to follow his spirit are going to do this. You're going to want to restore fallen brothers and sisters in Christ. Not step on them while they're down. Restore them. Lift them up. The aim is restoration, not humiliation. The way of the sinner, we would remind them, is hard. The wages of sin is death. A believer who is no longer conceited is now concerned with the fact that this brother or sister is heading down a hard road. And you don't want a hard life for them. You want, a, you want, a, you want the easy yoke, the light of Christ and his love. So you are concerned with their restoration and their promotion. The, the second way that the gospel transforms our relationships is we become gentle. Restore that person gently. I love that word. Like Paul had to put that in. Because we are prone to restore people harshly. We want to bludgeon them over the head sometimes. We think that if we're, if, if we're, we think that if we're gentle, they won't hear us. Right? So we got to yell, we got to scream, we got to point out all the different verses in the Bible where they're wrong. And we're not gentle. A, pe a person who is conceited that has a superiority complex does, is not interested in being gentle. They are harsh, often intend to humiliate a person who has fallen, simply again to highlight the fact that they have not fallen in that area. Right? The word for restore... It's, inter it's interesting, and I think some of you have ever, who have ever had a dislocated bone might identify with this. But the, the word for restore actually is a reference. It's a medical term that talks about resetting a dislocated bone. Has that ever happened to anyone in here? That a bone that needed to be reset? Was it fun? Did it tickle? No. It's painful, right? It inflicts pain. It is hard. It is difficult. Confronting a brother or sister in sin is going to be painful for them. It's not going to be fun. So the Bible encourages us, you who are spiritual, restore them gently. So the Bible instructs us to gentleness. Now it's interesting because this text doesn't say what being gentle looks like. How do you, what, how do you exhibit sort of this characteristic of gentleness? Because scripture doesn't really say right? In this text, at least. But through my examination of scripture and just experience over the years, I've learned that there are some helpful things that I want to just communicate with you as ways that you can be gentle with someone who's headed for trouble. The first thing that I think is important is to affirm them, affirm their worth, that they're loved by God, affirm their gifts, I've noticed over the years your compassion, your work ethic, etc. Now, this isn't a trick. This isn't a, a compliment sandwich, right? 
it's approaching it wisely. It's acknowledging that, that if they are a believer in Jesus Christ, that they have great value, and they need to remember that. The second thing that I think is very important in exhibiting gentleness is listening. <clears throat> when I was um, in my early 20s, I might have shared this with you, but I was going through this problem, and I wasn't, I wasn't handling it well, and I started drinking um, alcohol, not Kool-Aid, okay? Just for you guys to know, right? Um, <laughs> not cherry Kool-Aid. Um, and um, um, one, uh, someone who I knew found out, and they came up to me at church, what's the matter with you? That's wrong, and you should stop doing that. Like, and I think he, I, I really think that he loved me. I just, I don't know that he was thinking about what was going on in my life at the time. So when I say listen, you might say something like, you know, you don't seem like yourself lately, and I love you. Um, what's, what's going on? What's going on in your life? I want to hear your heart right now. Chances are there might be some tragedy or some problem that they just don't know how to cope with, and if you just bludgeon them over a head, over their head with a with the Bible verses that they violated, they might not really think that you care about them all that much. See, so affirm them, listen to them, identify with them. In other words, you're a sinner too, right? You've fallen too, right? You know, I I remember enduring a similar trial in my life. And I remember not handling it so well. So I know what you feel like. Right? Gentle. And then inspire them. What I mean by inspire them, there, there are warnings in Scripture, but then there is a vision that, you know, the, the warnings are like, if you do these wrong things, you're headed to death and destruction. But the Bible never just leaves us there. You know, you've sinned against God and the wages of sin is death, boom. Right? See, the Bible doesn't inspire us to righteous living by condemning us with the laws that we've broken. It inspires us with, with the light that we receive by the grace of God. And what I mean by that, it's we need to remind each other that there's a better way. It's not just you're headed towards destruction and this is bad for you. It's there's life over here. There's light over here. And I love you so much. Would you just consider following Jesus even though it's hard? Even though you're going through hell right now, would you just trust him and go this way? And I'm going to go with you. I'm going to get to that in a second. Okay? It says, watch yourselves in this whole process of restoring someone gently. Watch yourselves so that you also, um, or, or you also may be tempted. Did you see this? Watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Now, Dr. Keller no, says, quote, you won't be able to gently confront someone if you think you are not capable of similar sin, end quote. Isn't that true? You will not be able to be gentle with someone if you think you are far above them. You would never do such a thing. How dare you, right? Remind yourself that given the life and set of circumstances that this person has endured over the years, you probably would be making the same exact mistakes. Humble yourself and be gentle. So the gospel transforms our relationships by this desire for people's restoration and promotion, 
by pursuing, the, pursuing them in that restoration gently and by sharing their burden. We're not just a Bible verse that gets shot at them. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Friends, gently confronting someone who has fallen into habitual sin is a way to show the love of Christ and therefore to help carry their burden. It's saying to them, you are not alone, you are still loved, let me help you. Right? And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He didn't just say, hey, by the way, you all sinned against God. You know, you're, you're, you have failed and you're separated from him. Now, that is a message of scripture, but what did he do? He came down, he took on our flesh, and he carried our, our burden on a cross for us. The weight of sin was distributed off of us to him. So, friends, this tells me that we as Christians, as brothers and sisters of Christ, in Christ, that we need to be willing to take some of the weight off of each other, to distrib dis distribute it evenly to our shoulders from theirs. And that has to mean that we are close enough to people so that we know what their burdens are to begin with. Is that true? You gotta know people if you're gonna do this. You gotta be so driven by the gospel that you are actually willing to take some of the weight and be inconvenienced. Friends, conceited people aren't willing to be bothered by this because they're after the applause of men. You're just gonna get in the way. Or if they do bother, they're just going to try to help you so that people will notice them. Isn't that true? If anyone thinks, so Paul cautions, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. If you think that you're something, if you are seeking glory through your performance, and the admiration of man, that's what he means by th if you think you're something, that you deserve the glory of man, right? You will never bear someone else's burden. You, will, you won't notice them, and if you do, you won't have time to help. But the gospel reminds us, friends, of the burden that Jesus bore for us. In other words, we matter. You matter. What you're going through matters. The reasons why maybe someone is falling into sin, those things matter too. And I'm not just going to help you be, do the right thing. I want to know why you're so weighted down. I want to speak truth and promises into your life so that you can receive healing from the word of God instead of sin. You see? You see that's the, that's the, the, the dirty work of Christian discipleship and restoration. And we have to ask ourselves a question. Do we love each other enough to do this work? Are we patient enough to be on the other end of it? If anyone thinks they are something when they are nothing, they deceive themselves. The gospel reminds us of the burden that Jesus bore for us by grace. And that gospel motivates us to be likewise, to do likewise for others. Friends, would you love Jesus so that you might become willing to distribute that impossible load that so many bear and be a service to God's people? The last way our text reveals how the gospel transforms relationships is, is um, by carrying, it says, carry your own load. Now, this is interesting. It seems kind of 
opposite of what he just said, but we'll get to that. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone, huh? Without comparing themselves to someone else. Okay, I like that one. That, that, that previous sentence, that's a little confusing. What does that mean? Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Now, what, is, what does this mean? Because it just said, carry the burden of someone else, now carry your own load. I thought we were supposed to do it for each other. Let's, let's answer this question. It seems odd that the Bible tells us to take pride in ourselves alone. Now, this is not the pride that comes from the glory that we seek through our performance. We know scripture co condemns that over and over again, that we receive the, the applause of God through the grace of Christ, not through our performance. So this is not the pride that comes from the glory that we seek through our performance, making us feel better than people or worse than people, right? What, is it, what does this mean then? What I think this means is that we are appreciating who God made us to be and we are content with the limits of who we are, okay? We don't think our gifts make us better than other people or worse than other people. We don't think that our talents make us better than other people or worse than other people. What I think the scripture text is saying, be content with who God has made you to be and be that person, right? Stop comparing yourself, it even says. Without comparing yourself to someone else, it says, we carry our own load. How can we carry someone else's burden and likewise carry our own load? Well, it's, be, it's because they're two different words. A burden is an unbearable weight that no one can bear unless they get help. A load is almost like a backpack or a purse, right? Basically, what it's saying is that we are con to be content, as I said, with who God has made us to be. Other people have different gifts than you, and we do not need to bear the impossible burden of trying to be someone else, right? We admire the gifts of other people, the talents of other people, but we are not them. So scripture says you are only responsible to do what God has asked you to do, not what he's asked other people to do. I've said this before. I love this quote. Rabbi Zusia once said, when I reach the gates of heaven, they will not ask me why I was not Moses. They will ask me why I was not Zeusia. Why are you trying to be someone else? God has gifted you and equipped you to be who you are. You know that wonderful parable, that illustration that we receive from Jesus. He gives one talent and five and ten talents. God is not impressed with the person who has 10 talents versus the person who has five. Do you want to know why? He's the one that gave those talents to them. And if he didn't, they'd have none. Right? Isn't that true? John the Baptist confessed. There's this wonderful place in scripture where, um, imagine being so awesome that people think you're Jesus Christ. Like, that's how awesome you are. You know, baptizing people, big crowds, miracles, all this stuff. And people are coming up to him and saying, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that the Old Testament promised, the seed of Abraham, the Savior? 
That's how awesome this dude was. Right? And he, you know what he said? The greatest confession of faith probably in all scripture. I am not the Christ. He must increase and I must decrease. I am not the Christ. And friends, neither are you. Welcome to the human club. You can't do everything. You can't be everywhere. You don't have all knowledge. You can't fix all problems. You will not return on nothing with a sharp sword proceeding out of your mouth and stamp out wickedness in the nations. That's not your job. Your job is to take the one, five, or ten talents that God has given you and to carry it. Isn't that liberating? You don't need to be a preacher. You don't need to be a missionary, right? Like, I mean, like a foreign missionary. You don't need to do that if, if what, what you mean by doing that is if you think that it makes you better than other people. See, now that frees me to be a missionary, not to prove myself or not to show myself to be better than other people, but to be obedient to the will of God for my life. You see, he loves you already. So now if I, if I decide that I'm going to do those things with my life, to become a preacher or a missionary, I'm not doing it to earn God's love or to get your applause. I'm doing it because he loves me already, and I already have his applause in Jesus Christ. Amen? Oh, isn't that good news? We are not the Christ. We cannot raise the dead. We cannot give blind eyesight, but he can. And we're his instruments. <clears throat> your gifts are not unlimited. You are not all-powerful. Your abilities only go so far. You are not the Christ. We are not. Can we say that together? We are not the Christ. So each should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each should carry their own load. Carry it, friend, without comparing yourself to people who are better at you than things. Because Jesus loves you to the ends of the earth and back. Amen? John Stott concludes, There is one burden that we cannot share. And that is our responsibility, our responsibility to God on the day of judgment. On that day, you cannot carry my pack. And I cannot carry yours. So let's close. Friends, Jesus carried our unbearable burden of sin and death so that we wouldn't have to. So that we wouldn't have to earn our glory from his or his creation. He gives it to us freely by grace through faith. We're not lesser or greater to him because of our performance. And this means that I don't have to compete with and compare myself with other people. I don't have to live in perpetual envy or competition with others. My worth is not derived from my performance or the admiration of people, but from Jesus Christ himself. So now we can serve each other gently. We can, we can be involved in the task of promoting someone else rather than ourselves because Jesus promotes us for us. Amen? I hope the gospel will make us secure in and who we are and gentle to those who fail. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, for this morning. 
I pray, Lord, that that these words would sink deeply into our hearts. How marvelous and how wonderful it is, this promise, that you love us because you love us. So God, I pray, Lord, forgive us for trying to show off, for trying to compete for attention through our performance, for degrading ourselves because maybe we're not as good at something as someone else. God, I pray, let us not be honor-hungry, conceited, envious. Let us not provoke each other, but God, help us to serve each other gently, to promote each other. I pray, Lord, transform us through your word. Give us life in our hearts. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know about Christ, that they would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ this moment. Friends, your sin has separated you from God. The wages of sin is death. The life that you're seeking, the life that you're after, that you want, is only found in a reconciled relationship with God the Father. And only Jesus' death and resurrection can reconcile you to him. Come and get it. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Friend, if that's you, if God is turning your heart in repentant faith, would you share it with me after church? Find me or someone else to communicate with what God is doing in your heart. God, I thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. Bless our church in Jesus' name, amen.